Are we going to turn to God's Word now, please? And if you have a Bible, you may want to share with others. Um, and it's in Ezekiel. Uh, and I don't necessarily be using the church Bible, so there's no number. It's Ezekiel 14. Find Jeremiah and keep going. And skip Lamentations and you come to Ezekiel, chapter 14. Under the heading, Idolaters Condemned. Are we going to read the first uh, 11 verses? So, Ezekiel 14, verse 1. Let's hear God's word. Some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat down in front of me. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Son of Man. These men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. When any Israelite sets up idols in his heart, and puts a wicked stumbling block before his face, and then goes to a prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him myself in keeping with his great idolatry. Let's pause for a moment there. What you have now is a form of uh, syncretism, bitter truth, and idolatry, and let's live together. God's response is, it's either one or the other. Verse 5. I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who have all deserted me for their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, repent, turn from your idols and renounce all your detestable practices. When any Israelite or any alien living in Israel separates himself from me and sets up idols in his heart and puts a wicked stumbling block before his face and then goes to a prophet to inquire of me, I, the Lord, will answer him myself. I will set my face against that man and make him an example and a byword. I will cut him off from my people. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet is enticed to utter a prophecy, I, the Lord, have enticed that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people Israel. Then they will bear their guilt. The prophet will be as guilty as the one who consults him. Then the people of Israel will no longer stray from me, nor will they defile themselves any more with all their sins. They will be my people, and I will be their God, declares the Sovereign Lord. And our second reading, which is an integral part of the, the theme uh, that we're pursuing in terms of change, change from idol worship to God worship, and we'll make this uh, transition uh, throughout as we think of God's Word. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and we begin at verse 2 through to the end of the chapter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 
beginning at verse 2. We always thank God for all of you mentioning you in our prayers. We continue to remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that God has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message ran out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Just have a prayer together now. I want to read a prayer which comes from the church in Kenya. But as believers throughout the whole world approach God's word, this is a prayer that we all need to take to heart. From cowardice that dare not face new truth, from laziness that is content with half-truth, from arrogance that thinks it knows all the truth. Living Lord, please deliver me. Amen. Right, so we're thinking about change from idol worship to God worship. And clearly from the second reading and the penultimate verse that we have there, verse 9, uh, that is really the focus of, of what we are thinking about uh, this morning. Change. Love it or loathe it. Welcome it or reject it. Accept it into your life or ignore it. One thing you can't do is simply to live and bury your head in the sand. Because all of life is about coping with change. Or would we say coping or managing change or handling change or accepting change rather than simply living in some form of denial. Change is an integral part of life. And we have been pursuing this in all sorts of ways from uh, references in the Old and New Testament and trying to apply it to ourselves each Sunday morning, and uh, we just have one more sermon left in this series. The positive conviction of this whole series could be summarized in a brief sentence, and it is this. Change is a lifetime task. 
change is a lifetime task. Now it may be that you have tried changing with greater determination. I've got to break that habit. I've really got to stop thinking this way. I've really got to change my whole outlook and so on. Realism says to us, change is a lifetime task and there is no letting up, either on our weaknesses or our strengths. Come with me, I'm having a meal in uh, a restaurant, meeting some people together with Hannah and there's pre-drinks. And I meet this couple, family relations, whom I've not met before and I say, what are you going to have? And he looks at me, and to this day, I can see that gaze, and he says to me, I'm an alcoholic. I have not touched a drink for ten years, and I'm only one day away, one day away. Now, that's realism. That's realism. I feel terribly guilty. How can you know? And he says, wherever you go, the adverts, the, the whole lifestyle, everything, it's facing you. When that's a problem to somebody, it faces you in, in bold letters every day. And every day is a fight. Every day is a fight. What is your idol? What is your besetting weakness? What's your Achilles heel? What is it? And how often are you giving in to it? Or would you say publicly with realism, like that very fine Christian, I'm an alcoholic and I'm only one day away, though it's been ten years since I've had a drink. That's realism. That's realism. The person who says, it's easy, drink's easy, I've given it up thousands of times. Not, is it? No, it isn't. Of course, an idol can be a good thing, not necessarily a bad thing. So maybe you've tried changing with greater resolve and determination. And yet, so easy to fall back, so easy to slip into the old ways. I say to you, as part of this whole series, don't, don't give up. All of life is a challenge and a task for a lifetime of change. How do you do this then? Well, first of all, you keep returning to the cross. That's, that's the center. That's where you come back to all the time and ask for fresh forgiveness and to look at that cross and see the enormity of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and taste and see again that forgiveness is good and God is good. Return to the cross and keep looking to God rather than your circumstances and your failures. Focusing on these liberating truths that God did in his greatness and his glory and his, and, and his goodness and grace is with you for the long haul. He's with you for the long haul. And here's the thing that perhaps we would find difficult to do. I know I would find it difficult to find um, a, a, a Christian whom you really know well. Whom you have proven confidence and confidentiality and share your weakness. So that you are accountable and together as fellow believers you journey together. That would be a very powerful thing. 
So our focus is on an idol or idolatry. Now, let's try to clear the ground for a moment. It isn't um, the Buddha on the mantelpiece. It would trivialize idolatry. It isn't that. And the whole point of reading uh, from Ezekiel 14 is the idol that's been set up in the heart. Not a, a shrine somewhere. It can be that, but it's obviously much more. What is an idol? Well, essentially it's your ultimate concern. What is your ultimate concern? What, what, what is the thing that you, you... Well, we say it like this, don't we? We value what we do and we do what we value. You can turn a good thing into something that is distorted and perverted, as we shall see in the course of this sermon. So it's not an object as such. It can be, but it's much more than that. It's your ultimate concern. An extreme admiration for something or someone. An excessive devotion that becomes obsessive and self-destructive. Put simply, anything or anyone that replaces the living God is the very essence of idolatry. Anything or anyone that replaces the living God is the essence of idolatry. And so, in verse 9 of our reading, the hallmark of these folk was, yes, they were, they were generous, opening their hearts and homes, not simply to their friends or the people they like, but sharing out of God's goodness. And then, because they turned from idols and turned to the living God. The fact that this, they were Greek idols is of no consequence, is it? The idols of today are just as powerful and real as they were then. In other words, it is, it is an eternal turning point. You turn from and you turn to. You disengage there and you engage here. That's what we're thinking about. It's interesting, this idea to serve the living and true God is in the present tense. Not a one-off thing. We're all, aren't we? We say this, don't we? I hope we mean it. We're all a work in progress. And we are, we've turned and we are turning. And we keep turning. Anything that replaces the living God. However, idolatry extends beyond false gods or outward images. If, if you have kept Ezekiel 14 open, just turn to it. If not, just listen to this. Because you see, this, this is an internal thing now. It's, 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 it's a hard thing. And in Ezekiel 14, verse 4, therefore speak to them and tell them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, when any Israelite sets up idols in his heart and puts a wicked stumbling block before his face and then goes to a prophet. You know, in other words, no, this isn't really that bad, is it? I mean, everybody's doing it. I mean, this is society. Things change. This is classic syncretism, which we'll be blighted with, not just our generation, everyone has and will, and somehow we settle for the lesser. We get the best of both worlds, if you like. And verse 5, I will do this to wreak 
capture their hearts. One thing about the Christian faith and the religion of the Bible, it's a religion of the heart all the time. It's a heart thing. It's the heart. Turning from idol worship to God worship, we could actually say turning from self-worship because often it is a projection of self and to things and so on. So it's a matter of the heart. So it could be greed, envy, lust, jealousy, self-centeredness, a, a form of narcissism that turns you in on yourself. Can we try to narrow this down? This is not intended to be comprehensive, but in broad brushstrokes, let's look at three things very quickly. First of all, when we think of how we can apply this, here's the danger. Don't we, I know this myself. The danger to worship what we call stuff. Our lives are full of stuff. We don't have time because it's just bunged up with stuff. Or power. Or influence or possession, or what we call materialism. Now, I'm not saying this to make you feel guilty, though I suspect that maybe, like me, you might feel that. And that may not be a bad thing. That's not the point of it. We know what it says, isn't it? Power tends to corrupt. And our lives are so busy just maintaining stuff. You wonder, at the end of life, is it really worth it all? The worship of stuff the essence of materialism, if you like, the relentless pursuit to have more, that somehow in our heart, whatever our vocabulary, contentment is not there. We, we, we are far from godliness with contentment, which is great gain. You know, sometimes things happen in life and you change, not because you want to, you change. One of the things for me is this, the funerals are taken of people who are younger than me, and I think, what's this about? It's really not worth it. Life is short, and our life can be stuffed, bunged up with stuff, not necessarily wrong in and of itself, just that we don't have time. The relentless pursuit, if you like, of money. It's the God of this world. He or she who has the most toys wins. Jesus said an awful lot about money. You may not think that's terribly spiritual, but its impact on our lives and our time and our relationship is powerful in the extreme. A life dominated by work. I work, therefore I am. The kudos that it gives, the power, the influence, the value, a life dominated, driven relentlessly for more. It's the worship of stuff. I think I haven't said enough about that. It's pretty boring, really, isn't it? And, and you know, it's, it's not good. It's not where we should be. Now, I'm saying that in a church where you have been generous beyond any imagination. And yet I still think it's right for me to say that. If we narrow this down a little bit more, we, the worship of stuff, the worship of sex. 
when you think about the news and some of the whole distorted approach to the, the paedophiles, pornography, children, and, and it's quite extraordinary. And yet sex is God's precious gift to mankind. There is a, a growing concern. Talk to teachers, particularly in junior schools, about children who through the, the computers in their own rooms at an early stage see sex as a selfish thing and, and aggressive. What's to become of them later on? It may well be a sinister move where our children's lives have been dominated by this all the time. Well, we're talking about worship of idols, isn't it? That, that becomes an idolatry. God's great, gracious gift becomes perverted and distorted. A corrosive impact that pornography is having, of course, not only on younger children. This God-given gift distorted. And it fragments relationships. It divides families. And, it, and, and the innocent are caught up in it. And the abuse goes on with relentless increase. The worship of stuff and of sex and family is fragmenting and church is struggling, albeit secretly. And yet it's God's good gift to us and we turn it into an idol. Now, you know, if these two things are big deals, this third one is the worst of all. Probably the most potent idol of all. And it is the worship of self. Your biggest problem in all the world is yourself. And so is mine. And we can project things. And we can justify anything if we are so predisposed. It's a, it's a sad reflection that uh, so much of our thinking, our lives, our living, our attitudes, our values are dominated by self. It is at the very heart of idolatry. It is idolatry of the heart. Self. The heart of idolatry. Idolatry of the heart. Self. It's in the way. Spoils things. Demands things. Becomes selfish. It's all about me. Do you see the point here then of this key verse? They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Who do you serve? Self? then you're an idol worshipper. You're a prisoner to self. And the whole point in Ezekiel 14, it's a thing of the heart. So we could put it like this, at the heart of idolatry is idolatry of the heart. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Get to the heart of the problem. Self. In fact, stuff and sex is a flea bite next to self. Self. 
And that's the genius of the gospel, isn't it? It changes yourself. It turns you out from yourself. And you look onto a, a world. And, and you are into You're not just drawing a circle around your selfish hobbies or interests or homes. You look out and you are liberated. That's the point. Where would you hear a sermon like this? On the BBC or in reading newspapers? Or talking. You won't. This is, the, this is the uniqueness of God's word. And it should make us to be people who are God worshippers, not self-worshippers. Now this is not an issue of culture or religion or tradition. The, in, in, in Ezekiel it's a Jewish issue. Though they were aliens, they were non-Jews. If you read Ezekiel 14 carefully. And it was the same the religion of the heart or whether it's Greek or whether it's British or anywhere else it's not a culture issue it's not a religious or tradition the gospel only, only can in the language of Ezekiel 14 recapture the heart it's the gospel that can do that and I hope that you are here today because you've put your living faith in Jesus Christ. Not your parents or not your friends. You yourself. That's the point. And when you turn, you are turning from yourself and you're turning to your Saviour and you're trusting Him to capture the heart. The appeal of the Bible is give me your heart. Give me your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's the appeal of the Bible. Contrast is the mother of clarity. Can you see it then? Can you see it? Give me your heart. Very quickly, and uh, four dangers in idolatry. Number one, try to crystallize this now. Uh, number one, idolatry stagnates our knowledge. We are content with lesser things. It causes us to be, have closed minds, narrow views, prejudging, even though we are Christians. And we are defensive about our failures and reluctant to face ourselves. That's the danger of idolatry, number one. Secondly, not only does it stagnate our knowledge, but idolatry steals our allegiance. Is he, this wonderful Jesus, your Saviour and Lord? The trouble with idolatry is it makes you compromise where you shouldn't. Steals our allegiance. Thirdly, idolatry strains our balance. We're off kilter. When you think about it, the world offers us so many good things. And we should give thanks for that and enjoy that. But sometimes some things just get in the way. And lastly, the fourth, idolatry Stunts our growth. Are, are, we, are you a changing, growing 
Christian, or he has sought the person to say, my mind's made up and, and I don't want the fast. Don't confuse me. Content in a sort of mediocrity. Harmless, but not much use. Idolatry stunts our growth. We will never grow in Christ as long as our ultimate allegiance is placed elsewhere. That's the point. Those are four dangers of idolatry. Obviously, there are many more. Those, but, but look, four con- convictions about Christian worship. Let's try to be a bit pious here. This is a negative sermon. It's not meant to be. These four convictions is this, that God is great. This God is great. So we don't have to be in control all the time. Why are we like that? Why are we such control freaks? Even in trivial things. God is great. God is glorious. He is glorious. We think of his glory. Our theme of life, our motto, dear Gloria, the glory of God. And in this situation, does this glorify God? And we don't have to fear other people. Or what other people think. Some of you young folk are here. And it's tough at school. What do people think? And your peers and at class. Yes, but where does the glory of God kick into that? And God is glorious and God is good. So we don't need to look elsewhere. And nothing should eclipse his glory and his goodness. And thirdly and finally, God is gracious. We don't have to prove ourselves. You don't need to do that. So let's have a pause for a moment. Just time out, okay? I, what I want to do is to use these four uh, statements about God. He is great, he is glorious, he is good and gracious. And I want to make a statement and I want you to reverse it. Okay? You know, like God is good all the time, all the time God is good. And we're going to say God is great all the time, glorious, good and gracious. So that will enforce what I'm saying. Okay? Help me out here. So let's start in the sequence that you have it, hopefully. So, we're thinking about idolatry, we're turning from self, we're embracing Jesus Christ afresh, and we say this. God is great all the time. God is glorious all the time. God is good all the time. God is gracious all the time. Yes, he is. Now, you've said that. I hope that you've meant it, not simply because I've encouraged you to say it. Turning from the worship of idols, to the worship of the living God who is great and glorious and good and gracious. So let's conclude. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 and 3, this transforming change is for life. And there you have it. You see, we always thank God for all of you. Isn't that lovely? All of you, no favoritism, all of you, mentioning you in our prayers, and this lovely threefold truth weaves together into a strong cord that cannot be broken. Look at it. We continually remember before our God and Father, your work, this is not just words. You know, as I get older, I'm increasingly becoming disillusioned with evangelicalism. It's all about words. It's so wordy. This 
next book, this next conference. It's all about words. But what does it do? Is it verbiage? Or is there something authentic here? A lifetime of faith. Not words, but works. Beware of evangelical verbiage. Secondly, a lifetime of love. You see, this is not passive, but active. It's not simply about my feelings, important though that might be. It's not words. It works. It's not passive. It's active. It's agape love. And a life of hope. Hope. You see it in verse 3. It's not human. It's divine. It's not human optimism. I hope. We were discussing this in our home group from this passage uh, last Thursday. Christian hope can sustain and nourish a living hope in the resurrection. A lifetime of faith. A lifetime of love. A lifetime of hope. I just want to introduce our hymn which has this phrase, the dearest idol I have known. Dare that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. Who wrote that? Well, you know it's William Cowper, one of his many hymns. He, he was befriended by John Newton, who was the author of Amazing Grace. And John Newton used to say to, to William, look, William, I'm using this sermon, and he would probably preach this sermon sort of ten times in these various parishes. He said, I'd like you to produce a hymn to complement this sermon. Well, William Cowper, he was born in 1731. Just give you a little sense of this. Born in Berkhamsted, not very far from here. And under the strain of impending exams, and I was talking to one of the two young folk who would be in that room this week, sitting down, three-hour exams. Hard work, isn't it? Under the impending strain of exams, he suffered a mental breakdown. And in 1763, he attempted suicide three times. He was befriended by a vicar and his wife, and regained some balance. John Newton befriended him and in that time of keeping God at the centre some of his greatest hymns were written. Great hymn writer of all me as we call him. And throughout his life he battled with, with depression and mental illness fearing that God had judged him to hell. And this struggle is reflected in many of his hymns. Listen to this uh, a quote from one of his hymns. Our faith is feeble, we confess. We faintly trust your word. Wilt thou pity us the less? Be that far from thee, Lord. He used his depressive experience to put Christ at the centre and be a means of blessing to other people who are smitten with such an illness. And so, our hymn, Oh, for a closer walk with God. We're going to sing this. A calm and heavenly frame. Think about now turning from an idol and turning to worship the living God. Return, O holy dove, return, sweet messenger of rest. 
I hate the sins that made thee mourn and drove thee from my breast. The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne. Do you see this? This healthy tension that you have here. And worship only thee. Turning from the worship of idols to the worship of the living God. And we can use this as a prayer as we come to the Lord's table. And as you come, please trust in Jesus as your Saviour. And join in communion and reaffirm all that he is and all that he can be to you. Let's stand and sing this together.